Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Katie Berlin, and we have a special guest today who happens to be my boss and one of my favorite people, Dr. Jessica Vogel saying, how are you doing? Welcome to Central Line. I'm good. Thank you for having me. I didn't realize how long I've been doing this and I haven't actually been on the podcast. <laughs> I know. So um, Jessica is our chief medical officer here at AHA and she has been a great supporter and encourager of Central Line. And it is the reason that it exists because when I came on these discussions had already been happening. Um, but uh, she has never actually graced us with her presence. So I'm feeling very excited about today. Oh my goodness. It took a while. But we're doing the check it. is in the mail. Thank you. <laughs> happy Valentine's Day to everyone, because that's when this is going live. Yes. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. And we actually have a little bluff letter for you today. Um, right? We have some really some things to talk about that um, reflect, I think, how Jessica and I both feel about the profession and how we want to um, encourage everyone else to be able to experience it, too. So we'll talk about that here in a minute. But first, uh, Jessica, would you give us a little bit of background on who you are and how you came to be here? Sure. So I've been in the profession for just about 20 years now, all in the San Diego area. So I did general practice for a while. I did emergency medicine in-home hospice and euthanasia, sort of all of the different corners I got to hit upon. And in the middle of all of that, I'm back in the late 2000s, I started a blog called Paw Curious. And so that was when I really started to get into writing and hearing stories from not only other veterinary professionals, but from pet owners and really understanding how the internet could be this incredible tool for communicating better with our clients. And so after balancing the two of those for many years, I came onto AHA full-time about two years ago um, as a content strategist, which is the role now occupied very beautifully by you. And I have been the chief medical officer for almost a year and a half now. Yeah, man, you sure got thrown in the deep end with with that job because you started and then, then we had Connexity. Yes, <laughs> it's like one smooth motion. Yes, promoted two weeks before our annual <laughs> conference. No pressure. <laughs> yes, and from what I hear, you handled that very gracefully, and that is, that is the case with pretty much everything that gets thrown at you um, at Aha, which is a lot. You do a it's, lot. Well, it's still nothing compared to being an ER. Like, let's yeah. be real. Right. I mean, that's the thing. It's like Aha is, is an organization. There's a lot of people looking at you, but at the same time, like no one hopefully, knock on wood, is actively dying during it. That would be problematic. Um, if, yes. If, <laughs> if, if they are, it's probably not your fault or your job to save them. And they're probably in another state. So hopefully that's not going to be the case. But um, but I, I've i been um, watching, you know, as you've really flourished in this role. And, um, and I'm very grateful that you got promoted because it means that I have my job, which I love deeply. Well, I'm very grateful too. I love this um, podcast. Good. Uh, so before we start, I wanted to ask you one of the questions, you know, the fun questions, because people need to know you as more than just a chief medical officer. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could tell us something that people would not guess about you. Okay, so I, um, I am a beanhead. I have to explain this one. So 
I have a friend who's a foodie. She writes a food blog and she was talking about these amazing beans that she gets from this place called Rancho Gordo. And there's like a two year waiting list for their bean of the month club. And of course <laughs> I'm like, I want it, even though I didn't really eat that many beans. So after t- I was literally on it for a year and a half before I got in. And now I've got I think 12 bags of beans a year. My daughter went away to college. I don't, I'm getting really good at cooking more beans. <laughs> they freeze well, at least. Yes, yes. Because now I'm stubborn, right? I don't want to give right. up my membership. I waited so long for it. Uh, so right. if, if you have questions about uh, bean recipes, I, I have lots of options for you. Many talent, a woman of many talents. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Cooking and baking are my stress relief. So um, bean recipes and chocolate chip cookie recipes are two Mm. things I can rattle off the top of my head. Yes. Thanks to you and a recent Newstat article um, that you wrote, chocolate chip cookies is one of our like most most frequently referenced terms in our newsletter this in the last couple of weeks because of you. (laughs) I noticed you're making your mark. Yes. No searching for oatmeal raisin. No. This is good. No. Yeah. You're you're raising them right. So, <laughs> so the Bean of the Month Club, um, I, until I met you, I would not have guessed that. And now that I know you, that doesn't surprise me at all. But it would definitely have surprised me a year and a half ago. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure what to make of that, but that's good. Yeah. <laughs> but anybody who knows you on Facebook um, knows that you can make a gingerbread house that looks like an actual structure. Like it's an actual building, yeah, very beautifully that, decorated. I um, I took up baking, like sculptural baking, when I went out of clinical practice because I, I still love using my hands and I don't get to do surgery and do the hands-on sort of stuff. So I started building these architectural edifices out of out of gingerbread. I love it. It's much love more it. low stress than surgery. See, that seems very stressful to me. Like making a, a gingerbread house that no one asked me to make and making it beautiful. That seems stressful to me. I would probably start and then not finish because that's who I am as a person. So. It's very easy to do. Yeah. Anyway, so today we are talking about um, the theme for 2023 um, here at AHA, and we're hoping for the whole profession. Um, you were the one who decided that in 2023, we were really going to focus on the team, the veterinary team, and call 2023 the year of the team. And I love that. We've gotten lots of good feedback so far. Um, could you talk a little bit about what that means to you? Yeah. So I've actually been wanting to do this ever since before I went to vet school. Um, when I was in college, I spent the summers as uh, we called them receptionists at the time, but a CSR for a um, an office, a medical office here in San Diego. And so I was in the floating pool. So I went to all these different offices and and worked in the front desk and learned so much about how you were treated by um, staff, how you were treated by patients and doctors. And and I will never forget this. Um, I had won a raffle. We had these monthly raffles and it was a big basket of brownies. And we've already established I like baked goods, right? So it happened on my day off, which was a Friday. And I was super excited. And I come in on Monday and it was open. And there was a brownie missing and all the rest of the brownies were stale because they had been out for two days. And I said, well, what is up with that? And the doctor had helped himself. And the other people who were there were like, you know, those aren't yours. And he said, well, they're for everyone. She won't mind. 
And I will, I will never forget. I mean, it wasn't about the brownies, right? It was about the sense of entitlement and the fact that it's just the receptionist, she won't care. And of course I was broke at the time. I can't afford to replace that. And he never apologized or, or anything. And it really, it wasn't just that incident, but the entire experience really informed what I brought into into veterinary medicine, having that perspective and knowing how people treat different members of, of the team differently. I have always wanted to bring that into any place I go. So with AHA, it um, turned into wanting to really turn an entire organization's focus onto the team for a year and see what would happen. I love that that's the consequence of it, but I hate that you experience the same treatment that I know so many of our team members do, which is just sort of being passed over and like you're a second-class citizen. And I don't, you know, I, I would love to say that it looks different now than it did when we graduated, but I'm sh- I don't think it does. Like, I think that it manifests itself in different ways now, um, but that culture is still so pervasive in so many places. Yeah. And I mean, this, this doctor, I actually liked him as a human. It wasn't, he was a bad guy or he was a terror to work for, but to your point, it's just part of the culture. Mm -hmm. And I think it really takes this intentional thought um, in terms of how you practice team-based medicine, which is an entirely different approach to your workflow to just how you interact with each other. And so that's the part that I'm really interested in exploring because I know a lot of folks have scratched the surface, but I don't think we've really done much of a a deep dive into what this means. And certainly what we've seen over the last couple of years between um, the pandemic and all of the workforce crisis that we're seeing right now, it is more important than ever to really understand what everybody brings to the table and how we can leverage that to its best. That's a great way to phrase it. And um, I think everyone can identify in some regard with this this sort of year of the team, even if you're in management or the head of your team, um, because there's a good chance that most managers, I mean, I've, I've met a lot of managers and practice owners who had the best intentions, but they were just so stressed out or they felt so behind the eight ball all the time that they didn't have a chance to implement the team culture that they really wanted to. And that's part of our mission this year, right? Is to try to help give everybody on the team resources in order to help create the culture that they want to live in. And I think, you know, even more than that, it's just understanding um, professional development for everybody in, in every part of the team as well. So when you look at team-based medicine on on the human side as as a discipline, we have the uh, you have the patient at the center of the circle, and so many of the diagrams and the structures you see right now still has the doctor at the center of the circle, and it's all about how the doctor relates to everybody else instead of having the patient in there. And what I love about that um, that centering of the patient is everybody's equidistant. Uh, one of the things that, and I've, I know I'm talking a lot about CSRs just because that's my frame of reference. Obviously, we know technicians um, are so much the backbone of, of the work that we do. But being, you know, an adult and going out and doing fun things like going to the dentist or the orthodontist, you really experience things in a different way when you're thinking about what that means. That, that who's the first person you talk to? What is the first impression you get? Who's the gatekeeper? The fact that we're not looking at each person as equally important in their contributions, that's really what team-based medicine is all about. It has to be intentional. 
It has to be ongoing and it has to make an assumption that everybody's work is incredibly important and that you're assuming that they're going to be there and, and want to grow and contribute to the best of, of what they can do. At least I've been guilty of this and probably a lot of people have been of saying, well, if the patient and client are at the center and we're all equidistant away, then doesn't that lead us to sort of the customers always right, like we have to take what they hand out kind of thing. But the fact is that if the patient's at the center, and I, I had a lot of medical issues last year, as you know, I was at a lot of doctors, like a lot. And the more I felt like everybody I talked to cared about me, the the easier a patient I was. I was more likely to take their recommendations. I wanted to listen to them. I was very grateful. I was certainly not going to be, you know, um, grumpy with them or snarky with them, even if things didn't always go how I wanted them to, because I felt taken care of and like they actually saw me as a person. Um, and so I think that's an important distinction that we're not saying that like everything should center on the, the patient and client in that they're always right. And we just have to do what they want. It's more, this is an approach that will benefit everybody on the team, including the client and patient. Oh, abs yeah, absolutely. I mean, Patient-centered medicine is simply about focusing on how to optimize outcomes and making sure everybody has equal input, um, including you know the, the patient and the client. But having input doesn't mean I'm right or I have priority. There is specific input that you want to solicit from the patient or the client's point of view. Uh, oftentimes, they will give you input that you didn't want or ask for if they're feeling frustrated right, or feeling like they're not being communicated with. But to your point... If everybody's working to the best of their ability and, and people aren't feeling frustrated because you've done a really good job of training your, your front desk to adequately communicate or you're using these different sorts of telehealth tools, um, you're leveraging your technicians to be able to help with follow-up, all of those things are going to lead to your point um, to, to better outcomes. And again, you know, obviously we want people happy, we want them satisfied. Um, but that's not really what it's about. It's about improved outcomes and the rest of it's just a happy bonus. I feel like something I've encountered in all the different roles that I've had, including CSR, veterinary assistant, veterinarian, and now at this job, um, has been if something's not clear to me or I don't feel have I have the tools to handle it, I get grumpy about it much more easily and I wish people wouldn't ask me about it. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Or I'm just likely to make something up or find something else that I need to do more urgently. And I, I feel like that's a huge part of this year of the team is trying to make sure that the entire veterinary team has the tools that they need to do their job effectively and well, because there's nothing like going up to a CSR and saying, you know, I don't understand why I got my dog got these four vaccines today. I only wanted these two. And the CSR does not know how to explain why those vaccines are important, how it might have happened that they got all four. Like maybe there was a combination vaccine and the owner didn't realize, you know, if they don't have the tools to explain this stuff, suddenly that's an argument that right. could have easily been dealt with by effective communication. And it's not their fault. Um, and we all have been in situations like that. It doesn't feel good. Right. Yeah. And that's a great point about being extraordinarily clear about roles and responsibilities. And it's going to vary from, from place to place. But I think about that all the time. And every place I've ever worked, um, the CSRs essentially have to do triage. 
because we haven't given them other tools and you don't have a designated person necessarily who, who can handle that. And without that training, they're having to guess or come ask you. And to your point, when you're busy and you're grumpy and you just sort of assume that they're going to know the answer, that's all these things sort of, of come into play. And there are ways to, to build those workflows into place or to automate them or, or to get help or to give people adequate offline resources so they can have their questions answered without you having to do it right there in that moment. But, but it is, it's, it's a lot of work and I understand that, but hopefully we'll be able to at least give some examples and, and give some tools so that even if you can't implement everything, you can at least start to kind of go down that road and make sure that we're empowering everybody. So what are some of the, um, the initiatives and pieces of content and things that you're excited about that are coming out of AHA this year? There, well, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think for I should say most, most excited about. <laughs> I think well, what I'm most excited about are our certificates, um, which you've done an incredible amount of work on as well, because we know that everybody wants something to help differentiate themselves. This is something I'm particularly interested in nutrition, or I'm particularly interested in dermatology, not so much in surgery. How do we help people? really get these professional development opportunities that um, are best for them. But we also wanted something that was going to be applicable and helpful for the entire team. So not just for DVMs. And as you know, it's taken a lot of work, um, 18 months or so, to create a certificate program out of our guidelines that is something that can be used by the team. So it's got the clinical information in the guideline, um, communication tips that would help your technicians who are probably doing a lot of that client education, CSR tips, all of those sorts of things are baked into our certificates, but we're doing the same thing with our guidelines. When a new guideline comes out, we'll have a toolkit with tech tips, uh, with CSR tips. So everywhere, every piece of content that we touch, the whole team is really thinking to themselves, how can we look at it through this different lens? What does this team member need to do to adequately implement this resource and then working on creating it? Yeah, I love that, that we're getting to do that now. Um, I feel like this is such an exciting time to be at AHA and to be in the profession because there are so many discussions happening around this empowerment of different team members that just weren't happening 10 years ago that I remember. And um, I love working on the toolkits. And I love the idea that the certificates are for so many different levels of experience and different roles in the, in the practice. Like if you have an experienced credential technician who's been doing surgery for a long time, but maybe is struggling with um, how to train newer technicians or um, convey to veterinary, to experienced veterinary assistants, how to get to that next level of of patient care, um, then an anesthesia or pain management certificate that gives them not only the um, reinforcements of the information that they have, but also gives them ways to communicate that information to team members and to clients. That's the stuff I didn't, I don't feel like I got adequately in school. And I have to imagine that technicians feel the same a lot of the time, that it's one thing to have the knowledge like rolling around in your brain. And it's another to make it come out of your mouth in a way that somebody else can learn effectively from. Right. And and that's one thing that I really learned from uh, being online, you know, in sort of this public facing capacity for, for 10 years is that 
people felt like they knew me because they were reading what, what I wrote. And so they would come and ask me questions and the sorts of questions that really you should be asking your, um, your care team, but they either um, didn't have access. It was difficult to get a hold of somebody with the answers, or they just didn't trust them for whatever reason, but they trusted me because we had had those, those touch points all of the time because I was writing, you know, five days a week. And so it's, it's just sort of fascinating how people bond to, to members of the care team and how they bond to clinics. I know we like to think that it's always my vet, my vet, my vet, but you know, they could just as equally bond to other team members if you give them the chance and, and the opportunity. And that's a good and healthy thing to do. It is. I know we've had conversations where we've talked about patients and clients that we had that we loved and that we miss. And I being so newly out of full-time practice, I think about those patients and clients all the time and I miss them. And that's a huge part of what kept me going on bad days was knowing that I was going to get to see Dunbar later, or I was going to get to see Diesel that week. You know, I got looked forward to those appointments probably way more than, than the clients actually did. Cause no one really loves like taking their pet to the vet, but I loved seeing those animals and those people. And in fact, there's a picture of one right there behind me. And I can't imagine not having that. And so we talk about like keeping technicians in the field, keeping veterinary assistants in the field and helping them to be all they can be. Like, why shouldn't they get to enjoy those bonds too and know that the client sees them as trusted members of the healthcare team instead of just like a transient person who's who's in the way taking a history before you get to see the vet. Like, I feel like that's always how it used to be. And that is the opposite of how it should be. Yep. Yeah. And it was interesting. One of the, um, the veterinarians that I worked for in general practice, she was, she was really doing this, I think, before people spoke about team-based medicine, because we were working for, for a corporate practice where everybody was supposed to do the same thing, right? There was a very prescriptive, um, this is what your technician does. This is what your doctor does. And we had this one technician who um, loved cats. And, and I mean, like loved a self-described cat lady, right? And didn't really want to ever talk about dogs. And she really preferred to stay in the back and do lab work. And she had been getting a really hard time from some of her superiors for that. And this boss said, well, that's fine. Like, let, let's work on that. Like you go into the room if there's a complicated cat question and the rest of the time you can sit back there and, and do your labs. And it wasn't a problem that was, that turned into our workflow. And it was great. Newly diagnosed diabetic cat, send Ramona in. <laughs> right? I mean, who wants to have that discussion, right? If she does, she can have it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and she was so good. And just that that sort of bond that she had, because that was something that was of interest to her. And that was the area that she wanted to focus on. It, it, it ended up in better outcomes, again, for her and, and for us. And so that's really... Um, the true benefit of, of team-based medicine, when I say better outcomes, it's not just about the patient. It's about everybody on that yeah. care team, including the doctors. Yeah, love that. And back to what you were saying about the certificates, like, you know, to be your practice's nutrition champion or pain management champion carries with it a certain amount of power, right? Like in a good way, <laughs> like I have the power, but like in a good way where, you know, you can say... I know how to confidently answer these questions and I know how to offer this information in a straightforward, 
but empathetic way so that the client understands that I know this is hard and I know they have concerns that maybe haven't been addressed effectively in the past. And that's the case with so many of these difficult conversations that clients just don't feel heard. Um, and so it's a great burden off of people who don't like those conversations to have somebody in the practice. Like it's like whenever I take my dog to the vet, there's always a chihuahua person there. And like, thankfully they seem to be working a lot on those days. And that when they whip out the chihuahua person, I know he's in good hands because they're not going like, to sit on top of him on a blanket, like to get stuff done. They're going to like chihuahua whisper him. Yes. And I feel like we can be nutrition whisperers and pain management whisperers too, um, in ways that our clients can really relate to. Well, and it allows you to offer a bit more personalized medicine, which is again, another trend that people are looking for. They don't want the same thing that you would say to someone else. They want the specific recommendation for my Chihuahua, my Frenchie, you know, whatever it is in there and being able to offer that one person who can really address that, you know, this is our yeah, like you said, our, our nutrition person is going to come in and talk to you. That that helps everybody. You know, mm-hmm. so we've got personalized medicine for for our patients and also this opportunity to really personalize your career. I think it's incredibly difficult um, these days for for people to ascertain, you know, where do I want to go? Where do I want to work? What are the what are the the red flags or or the green flags where I know that this is a place where where I'm going to fit in and be valued and to be able to come in and say, you know, in addition to all the things that I can do based on my license, I have a special interest in this. I can, you know, communicate the heck out of dermatology and maybe you're working with a surgeon who is going to be so excited because they hate derm. They hate allergies. Yes. They don't have allergy cases. Yes. I, I'm sure other veterinarians listening can relate to that feeling of sheer relief when that technician is working, who's like really good at the thing that you suck at, or is really good at the thing that you cannot stand talking about. Like it was a huge relief to say, thank goodness. I know you love this. I'm going to just hand it off to you. And know that that client's probably going to be in better hands than they would have been with you. Um, it's kind of like, you know, I worked with two technicians at my last job who loved, I don't know if it, the right word is loved, but they got a lot of satisfaction out of expressing anal glands. Like they actually just liked it. And man, I love those days. Cause it's like, here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> take this small dog and tell me when you are done. <laughs> and um, it was good. It was a good relief. And, and, you know, they got to do something that otherwise would have taken time that somebody else might not have had. It was a win-win. Yep. Yeah. So um, in California, our, our registered technicians can can do quite a bit with dentistry that mm. you know, they can't in other states. Thank goodness I'm in California. It was never, <laughs> never something I enjoyed. Uh, I'm so grateful to be able to hand off a lot of that. So yeah, I think, you know, that really just increases everybody's enjoyment when you get to have these opportunities for everybody to be able to focus on the areas that you excel at. You know, I think there's um, so much of an emphasis when you're in school about getting good at everything mm-hmm. and the areas that you're deficient in is always the focus uh, and not even deficient, but the things you, you don't do as well because you don't enjoy them and you try to avoid doing them. And we spend so much time trying to lift up and lift up and lift up instead of saying, well, you really kick butt at this. How do we spin that up even more? And that's when you know that you found the place that is right for you. 
don't put me in a sales job. Uh, right. Terrible at that. Yeah. Never do it. And I was never going to be a surgeon. I was fine at the procedures that I did. I did not want to learn how to do anything else. I was not one of one of those vets. And um, and that's cool because there are people that are just naturally really gifted at surgery. And why should I push something and give myself an anxiety attack every day when somebody else could do it and look forward to that and would rather do that than anything else? Um, totally, totally agree with that. You know, there's a lot more to the team focus too, that we really can just touch on now, which is um, we have a mentoring guidelines coming out this summer um, and our very first technician utilization guidelines coming out later this year. And I'm really excited about the mentoring guidelines and technician utilization guidelines because um, first of all, AHA's focused a lot on mostly on clinical guidelines in the past, and we're starting to introduce some what we would call non-clinical guidelines because they're not strictly about medicine. But to me, you know, nobody, I like to say nobody's leaving practice because they don't know how to treat diabetes. They're leaving for a lot of different issues that usually have nothing to do with the medicine. And so mm-hmm. I think it's, it's really great that we're starting to focus more on the non-clinical things that can help to keep people happy and in practice for longer. Yeah. I'm really interested. Um, to see the response that we get to the mentorship guidelines, because that was an update from a guideline that we did quite a while ago. And there's been so much more work in the field since then. And there are so many organizations that specifically are there to help veterinary professionals get mentorship in a structured way, in a way that's you know based in the science and the research about what we know is the best way to, to mentor someone. So it's great. The folks on the task force will hopefully blow everyone's socks off because I think they did an incredible job with that. Because I know for me, um, when I graduated, I wanted a mentor, but I didn't know what that meant. Um, and the person that I, I worked with ended up really not being, um, the greatest. I don't think he, you know, he really could have benefited from that guideline too. It doesn't specifically say in the guideline, don't throw, scalpels or needles when you're feeling frustrated, but, um, if we have to tell you that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, then you're probably not doing a great job. Um, right. <laughs> but you know, things have changed quite a bit for the better. And so that one is an update. The technician utilization guidelines actually was a suggestion from the aha board. And I think it was, it was a great one because we really, it's such a, a hot topic right now. We're not really getting into the discussion about title protection or some of those stickier issues, but just no matter where you are or how you practice, how do teams work together to make sure that each individual can can work to the top of their license, to to the top of their skill sets? Yeah, super excited about that one. And those two task forces, man, those are those are some. Uh, some very powerful groups of people that we have lots of ideas, lots of big thinkers. So we are, we are so fortunate with, with the aha guidelines. And we're always very, very proud of our task forces. And, you know, it's always like a little exciting wedding reception. Like, did they say yes? Are they going uh-huh. go, to be on our task force? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, um, and, you know, I, 
there's so many more connected issues too that we talk about that have to do with creating um, psychologically safe spaces and um, you know places where that people want to stay and that where it's not going to be easy for them to get tempted away by someone else's offer or by you know something that looks like it might be better than what they have it is a very hard thing in this industry to retain um, really good people and I also believe that there the majority of people in this industry are really, really good people and they deserve to be happy and feel comfortable where they are. And that includes, um, you know, conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, which we're hopefully going to be doing a lot more of this year and um, talking about different ways that jobs can be um, flexible and inclusive so that people can work from home. You know, we can have remote CSRs now, or we can have veterinarians working from their kitchen and uh, when their kids are home. And people who can lead from within the team and not feel like they have to be in a leadership position with a title in order to make a difference. These conversations to me just, I, I get so hopeful and excited when I hear about them because it's about time. And also I'm just really impressed with how open so much of the field is now to having them. Yeah. I was at um, a conference last year as a, the moms with the DVM encouragement conference. So shout out to the moms and you know, it was the first time that a group of women with this specific, you know, these concerns or being at this place in their life all came together at, at the same time. And I heard so many stories over and over about um, these moms. And again, it, it's not just moms that this applies to, but it really drove home how common of a problem this is. They left the profession um, because of outside, you know, circumstances and they felt like a door slammed shut behind them. So it wasn't that they gave up on veterinary medicine, a veterinary medicine gave up on them. And that made me so sad, you know, cause I've been there. My kids are now 18 and 16, but I stepped back when they were young. Um, I jumped over into a non-clinical position. I know what it's like to be burned out. You know, you, you get a lot that goes on in, in 20 years, but I'm still here. And that was because I was around really great people who were able to help me participate in this profession in the way that I could do it at that time. And so when you talk about um, retention, I do think a lot of those modalities about how can people contribute while they're still at home is, is huge. And we're really just scratching the surface of, of what that means. We're you know, really distracted by the concern about telemedicine right now, but that's not really what we're talking about. That's such a small little fraction of the type of, of conversation that we're having, communication and, and advice and talking to your clients with whom you already have a VCPR. There is so much that, that we can do. So I'm excited about us exploring that as well. Yeah. You could tell that we don't have any fun here at AHA and we don't have any ideas either. No. <laughs> <laughs> we just sit around and check boxes all day. <laughs> I could say I've had more um, like 5 p.m. brainstorm, like, oh, my God, we've been on a call for an hour just talking about ideas. I've had more of those here than I have in my entire life. And it is very fulfilling. And there's no reason that people in practices can't have those conversations too. So right. well, and to your point, it's about um, you know creating a little bit of a breathing space 
Yeah. For, for that to happen. And that is extremely tricky to do in, in a clinical yeah. environment, but it is, you know, what we're learning is it's worth it. Yeah. Well, before we close out, there's one other thing I wanted to talk about, which is, um, today, the day that this podcast goes on air, it will be February 14th and our, uh, AHA is one of the founding uh, organizations in the Veterinary Visionaries Initiative, which is um, an organism, basically a a, an, a group of organizations that are working to help um, advance the profession, solve big problems, talk to each other, and have it be a we rather than an us versus them mentality. And as we try to solve those problems on a systemic level, and I've really been um, been excited to work with with Garth, our CEO on Veterinary Visionaries and so many of the other AHA team members. And the solving event for this year starts on February 14th, so today. And uh, that date was chosen because we wanted this campaign to be sort of a love letter to the profession. And um, sometimes love letters aren't always all rainbows and sunshine. Love has a lot of sides. And so the country western side too. Yeah, the country western side. Yeah, (laughs) and um, so uh, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about this this solving event and what that means to you and the year of the team? Sure. So um, this year is like you said, it's about love letters to the profession, and in order to do that, that's very personal for everybody. And so we are asking people for their stories. And there's nothing I like more than stories. Uh, if, if you know me, that that's sort of my jam. And so in veterinary medicine, I tell people this all the time. Like we are, we have such dramatic stories and you forget that other people in other professions don't have that. I mean, there is so much deep pathos in, in the work that we do. And we don't acknowledge that and give ourselves permission to say what we do is really hard and it takes a lot out of you, but I continue to do it because of this. And so hearing from every individual person, and we invite everybody to participate in this and share your stories, you can record them and upload them. And we're going to be doing stuff with it all year. So, I mean, I can tell you what I think in in my stories all day long, but that's not, that's not consensus. That doesn't, you know, move needles having everybody collectively put their voices and stories together is what, what is powerful. And so that's what we're aiming to do with our visionaries event this year. Yeah. And we're trying to make it as easy as possible logistically for you to share your story, but we also know sharing stories is hard. And sometimes there's a lot of heavy emotion behind that. And, um, and we understand that. And we, I honestly believe, and I know, Jessica, just from knowing you for a while, that you feel this way too, that that honesty and vulnerability and authenticity is what makes stories powerful. And that's what makes this more powerful than a survey or a bar graph with data showing what somebody said when someone asked them a question. Like These stories are you and me, and they're powerful and they reflect real experience. And sometimes in order to affect change, which we know this industry has some areas where we really do need to affect some serious change. And sometimes that that's going to be the thing that pushes us over the edge to really making a difference is hearing someone else's lived experience and realizing that we can't do things that way anymore. There's nothing more powerful than story. 
I mean, you, you see that yeah. in, in every day in, in the news around you, you can hear about something over and over, but it's that one image, that one story that really changes the world. So, yeah, you know, you it, probably have one in your heart right now. Exhibit A, Subaru commercials. Yeah. <laughs> They're very good at using the story. <laughs> we all remember the bucket list commercial, right? Subaru and yes, the dog. Absolutely. Anyway. Um, Well, so Veterinary Visionaries, I'll just tell you right now, it's February 14th when this airs and um, Western Vet is right around the corner um, this week. And so we will be at Western. So if you're going to be there, come by the AHA booth and see us and we can actually help you record your story right there. Um, We will, thanks to our big supporters and friends at Care Credit, have some pillow pets to give away if you share your story. Um, And at at VMX, they were Eeyore. He was super cute. And at Western, they are going to be Dory. And I can't even handle how cute no. they're going to be. So um, <laughs> if you want your about, own... Yeah. What is it about us and plushies? I don't, I don't know. I don't collect them, but I still want one. I mean, you know, it's not that much of a stretch, right? Like we are in the business of helping like small fluffy beings yes. feel better. So yeah. it's not a stretch to know that we are all like plushy people and you can get yours if you're one of the first 50 people to come tell your story at Western. So look us up. And um, if you see me walking around, I may be wearing a mint green sweatshirt with a QR code on the back and you can scan me and I'll help you upload your story too. So, <laughs> and you'll, you'll, so Garth will probably be wearing one too. So if you see a tall, bald guy in a green sweatshirt, it's probably Garth. Multi-talented. Yeah. Podcaster, billboard. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anyway, well, I'm super excited about this year. Like, I am so excited to go to work every day and try to make these things happen because I really do love this profession so much. And I know you do, too. Like, this is our people. Yeah, I keep coming back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I, I just really can't imagine anything else. And that is, that is our blessing and our curse in this profession. Right. Absolutely. So let's make it as beautiful as we can. Jessica, thank you so much for finally joining me on Central Line. And um, actually, we'll be hearing more of you, more from you this year too, um, possibly with a guest. So stay tuned for, for more from Jessica. And thank you all for listening. We'll have lots more guests talking about team-based medicine. We will have so much great content coming your way this year from AHA, and we want to hear your feedback on all of it. So don't forget, you can always email at podcast at aha.org. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.